0: all right it's real life real equity with your host justin and keisha brooks welcome to the show our goal is to share with you real life examples of entrepreneurs are winning in both life and business as real estate investors our mission is to model educate and inspire you to act by sharing easy to implement tools ideas and information to add more worth to your net worth more cash to your cash flow helping you achieve your goals in less time welcome to the show All right. All right. Welcome back to the show. We are super excited about our guest today. He is an investment manager with Vernonville Asset Management, LLC, a private investment firm that helps investors attain or maintain financial independence through the use of alternative assets. He is also a physician who is board certified in internal medicine and is the founder of The Physician's Road, a physician services firm dedicated to helping physicians and other medical professionals create their lives in medicine on their own terms by providing resources in five areas, wealth accumulation, practice enhancement, improved health, enhanced relationships, and personal development. He attended Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, and graduated cum laude with a bachelor's of science degree in biology. At Morehouse, he was very involved in the Health Careers Society and mentoring elementary school children in math and science. After college, he relocated to Houston to attend Rice University's Jesse H. Jones School of Management and Baylor College of Medicine, where he received a dual degree MD-MBA, Upon graduation from Baylor College of Medicine, he attended the University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston for his internship and residency in internal medicine. He is in private practice and is currently on the medical staff at St. Joseph Medical Center in downtown Houston. He is also the president of Pinnacle Physician Management Organization, an independent practice association that caters to Medicare recipients. He is also a member of the Key Pack, a nonpartisan political action committee, and is involved with numerous community-based organizations in the greater Houston region, like the Morehouse College Alumni Association. Ladies and gentlemen, allow me to give a warm round of applause to our guest today, our good friend, Dr. Eric Tate. Welcome
1: to the show. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me.
2: Let's get started. Tell us a little bit about how you got started in your journey.
1: Okay. I'll try to give you the abbreviated version of it. So originally from Mount Vernon, New York, left New York to go to college in Atlanta, Morehouse College, left there to go do a dual degree MD MBA at Rice for Business School in Houston and Baylor College of Medicine, then went down to Galveston Island and did my internal medicine residency came back up to Houston, joined a mentor in practice and in internal medicine and private practice for many years. And today I am still a practicing physician, internal medicine physician. I see patients about one day a week. But when I was in business school, I decided that I did not want to have my own personal capital in the stock market. So I looked around for different ways to try to invest, whether that would be franchising or starting up operational businesses or multi-level marketing or all of those different kinds of things. But I realized that at least the first portion of my professional career was going to be practicing medicine, which is very time intensive. So I needed to find things that I could invest in that did not require me to be running it on a day-to-day basis. And so I just took a step back and said, okay, what are the ways that people become wealthy kind of quickly in the United States? And it's usually either real estate or private business ownership, usually non-service based business ownership. And I said, well, the business side of things, operationally, I probably don't want to do now. So let's focus kind of on the real estate side of things. And so uh, my wife and I just started buying kind of small single family homes, small apartments, grew a decent sized portfolio up to that point. And then some of our physician colleagues asked us if they could invest with us. That's kind of the genesis of when we started allowing outside investors to join us and then moved into much larger types of projects. So kind of in a nutshell, that's kind of my journey and where I am right now as it relates to kind of that side of of the business.
0: So you brought up a couple of interesting things that I really want to hit on. And so you brought up one that you graduated from Morehouse College. Talk to us a little bit about Somebody who I have been following for quite a while now, Robert F. Smith, and and what that meant, the contribution that he gave to Morehouse College, in, in your eyes, being a Morehouse graduate.
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. So Mr. Smith is he's kind of our, become our rich uncle, and we truly appreciate it. Um, <laughs> I love wow! It. Yeah, I love it. we have an event called a candle in the dark every Founders Day weekend um, in Atlanta, and we've. Pretty much any African American luminary that you can think of has been honored for the past almost thirty years at this point. And so I want to say two years ago, we honored him. It just so happens that actually he and my sister went to business school together. So I peripherally know him through my family. And so he was there, my sister was there, my nephew was there, because he spends a lot of time in New York as well, and that's where my sister is. So he got he received a lot of love there. And what happens is people don't really people have heard of Morehouse, but they don't really understand what Morehouse actually is and what it is to black men in the world from that way. And so I don't think he really understood necessarily kind of the historical arc of people who've come through Morehouse and where we are in different places in in society. Him seeing that kind of all at one time, he's a guy who understands capacity building and taking a platform and expanding it. And so what I think he realized is with the plight of African-American males that There is a platform that has existed for over 150 years that takes black men who either come from kind of highfalutin families and some who are first to go to college. We have a saying that say we take a diamond in the rough and mold it. And then we hold a crown above them, just above our heads so that we can always keep growing to try to reach it. And I think what he's realized is that there is a place that already has capacity. And so we can pour dollars into a place that already molds black men to be leaders in our country already, it makes life that much easier. And I think he's kind of gone into a philanthropic side of his life at this point. And I think we're the beneficiary of it. And then ultimately we feel that the country and in the world will be the beneficiary.
0: Man, that's, uh, that's powerful. and And it gives me chills because when I heard that, and when I read that, it's the implications of that are deeper than just giving some money. You know, he and, and I read the, one of the articles that uh, talked about him giving and donating. And uh, he actually didn't graduate from Morehouse, which is interesting. He could, he talked about being able to have donated to his alma mater or his business school. But ultimately, he chose Morehouse for reasons that I'm sure even the articles that we have read don't highlight. The deeper implications of it are, are really interesting. So I wanted to bring that up because it's I really like that idea, and especially the idea of him having donated to an all-male African-American historically black college. that The significance in that goes deeper than just money.
1: Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, symbolically, it means something on a capacity and a structural level. You have to understand the only intellectual institutions that African-Americans control are our black colleges. So they're the only places that we can turn to in times of crisis from an intellectual standpoint, from a workforce adequacy standpoint. People understand that 70% of black judges came from historically black colleges, 70 some odd percent of African-American doctors came from black colleges, 50 something percent of black lawyers, right? You don't have a black middle class without these educational institutions. And even if you did not go to one, I'm a big proponent that all African-Americans should adopt one. And tithe to them just like you would tithe to a church. Because we don't really understand the historical arc of what those institutions have done to bring us where we are out of slavery, out of Reconstruction, out of Jim Crow. And the symbolic nature of someone like himself who went to Cornell as an Ivy League school, who went to Columbia as an Ivy League school, who then said, you know what? I am going to bestow my wealth back into a place that ne- didn't necessarily directly benefit him, but he understood the larger historical arc that he doesn't exist without these types of institutions. Wow.
0: And I mean, there's so much to be said. Talk to me a little bit about what you see the implications for the other, not only billionaires, but multimillionaires, a decamillionaires, millionaires, a hundred millionaire African-American males who just watched him do something that I believe is symbolic in our community by donating such a substantial amount of money to a historically black college. I have not, or at least it has not been publicized that level of donation in our community, probably ever. So talk to me a a little bit about what you see that going in the future.
1: Well, now I'll be clear, right? Like Oprah gives has, has given Morehouse money. Oprah has scholars that go through that she funds, you know, when Bill Cosby was still in Good Graces, he gave a ton because his kids went through Morales and Spellman. So there is a hi- history of black philanthropy, but the problem is our numbers are so small when it comes to that kind of wealth that ultimately if we can create a culture, because here's, let's be clear, black folks give, right? We give to our aunties, we give to our family, we give to, we are a giving people, right? It right, may not always show right. up in, yeah. in the ways that, kind of foundations count it. The larger question I always have is in, in thinking about it is, are we giving to places that have the ability to create structural change, right? Or are we, are we doing the hand to mouth thing, right? Are we giving people just to be able to get to the next day as opposed to giving to institutions that we control, own, and can direct to our benefit on a larger generational kind of arc, right? Right, absolutely. Strategic giving is where I think we need to be focusing on. And also we need to be thinking about the places that we already give our dollars, right? Because we give our dollars to a lot of places. And the question is, what are we asking back for that? What is it that we're looking back for those institutions that we give to, even if it's not benefiting us directly, because if we're giving it, we're clearly not, it's not for us, right? But the larger question is, what are we getting for the dollars that we are giving? What is happening in our communities? What is happening in our society that that is being changed tangibly, not intangibly, not that we can't see or we got to hope for in the future, but tangibly, what is the difference that is being made with the dollars that we are already giving? I think we need to be asking those hard questions to historical institutions that many people don't necessarily want asked.
2: That's real good. I'm sitting here just thinking about how can we create the ripple effect versus just the little trinkle? Because sometimes we just do this little here and there thing, but truly this has given us kind of an outlook or a start at least on how to create this ripple effect because it's so many that were affected. I mean, when you look at just the class itself, they have already set themselves up for generational wealth. And so it's just one of those things that now how can we mirror that? How can others mirror that?
1: Yeah. They've actually been given the freedom to bless the world with their God given gifts and talents, as opposed to chasing a particular monetary lifestyle potentially. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that ripple effect those, because you have to understand the ethos of the college, right? The ethos of the college is to build men of strong character, right? right. It's not about educating people. It's about building. And I I can paraphrase the quote Um, Of one of our alums, but basically, you can create an educated fool who is slick with the tongue, right? Who will lift you from your money. But if you don't put character training through people with what is, they kind of lay on us pretty heavy, the, the historical obligation to give back, right? So if you look at the percentage of students there who actually volunteer, it's 80 plus percent during our time that we're all there. And that is just the ethos of the college and the ethos of what's expected of the graduates. So I think he understood from a capacity building standpoint that I put these 400 young men out here, I just freed them from a particular amount of shackles. They're going to take very different jobs when they come out, or they're going to do very different things when they come out. doesn't mean that they won't circle back to high-paying professions or these kinds of things. Their decision is going to be free of debt, which many right. students these days don't have.
0: Yeah, that, that is a, a very powerful Choice that they have been given, so we talked a little bit about some things that i don 't we don 't necessarily talk about on the podcast, but I think is, it was it was very relevant to talk about and discuss because just from the the perspective of economics and then talking about your history and then kind of switching over so these gentlemen have been giving given a choice. You made a choice a long time ago. Talk to us about some of the choices you made as far as entrepreneurship and business is concerned. That the character that you built at Morehouse has caused you to make choices to bring uh, an economical impact to the community through your entrepreneurship and business ownership?
1: Yeah, so on my mother's side of the family, we're kind of big black college graduate folks, right? So my great grandfather, who was a physician, went to Hampton. His son went to Hampton as well, who was also a physician. My uncle went to Morehouse, and then myself. And that side of the family is really from Savannah, Georgia. So folks know my family name down there in many ways because of philanthropy, because of what they did for local colleges. So Savannah State College, my great grandfather was the physician for the school. I mean, so that ethos of give back, if you if you've been given a certain amount of privilege and and I'm clear on that side of the family that we were we've been very privileged, um, even if it's not monetarily, because you really couldn't build wealth in that same kind of way through Jim Crow. But we had the ed- educational wealth that many African-American families didn't necessarily have from that standpoint. And they were also their own business owners, right? And so my mother was always clear with me that she like, you have to own something, right? She's like, as a black man in this country, you need to be able to control your own economic destiny. You can't be under someone else's thumb. Well, in her mind, she thought that was gonna be me owning a medical practice. But with the changes in medicine, I was clear that no, I can't do it that way. It, the way labor is constrained, it just didn't make sense to do it that way. I was like, I'm going to do it a different way. And she's finally kind of realized that, okay, cool. You're, you're doing it this other way. And so my entrepreneurial bend has been since I was a little kid, right? So I had multiple businesses when I was at, was growing up, was in high school, was at Morehouse when I was in medical school, when I was in business school, small stuff, but still was always there. And so I purposefully did a, an MD MBA program that was a conscious choice of where I was going to school, knowing that that program was being set up as I was coming into that medical school. And so for me, I was always clear that I had to own things. So that's why I love the name of your show, Real Equity. That's one thing that that many people do not do is we don't own things that produce anything. We are, we are consumers especially if you're talking about on the African-American side, we consume a ton, but we don't produce a lot. And so I was clear that, you know what, we need to reverse that because the only way you're going to have long-term equity is if you're producing something for other people. Right. And so for me, that was very clear. The other issue was my parents, I would assume roughly your parents, our civil rights generation, they came through kind of assimilation. They came through integration. They came through, yes. um, affirmative action yes. and they all hit ceilings. They all hit ceilings in their lives. My father was an original producer on 2020. They never made him an executive. Oh my producer. God! Now he has Emmys. He's, he's very well respected in the New York city news world, right? They would never make him an, a, an executive producer. So, our parents' generation hit these glass ceilings. And we being kind of late Xers, early gen Yers, have seen that, like, oh, okay. Well, we were told this was the American dream and this was the American promise, but we're gonna have to figure out a kind of different way and kind of rebuild some of these structures that we had when we were during segregation that we had that we could rely on ourselves that have basically gone by the wayside since integration. And so the next frontier in civil rights is really is, is economic. Right. And so right. while we've got the freedom to sit next to any people that we want to, in the end, the wealth gap disparity is what really matters in the United States. So legally, I can sit next to anybody, anywhere, anytime, you know, whatever. But in the end, if we're not coming as economic equals, if we're not coming with bringing some to the table economically, We're always going to get the lesser end of the stick. If we can't turn around and vote out, put money into elections to vote out city council, to vote out mayors, to vote out congresspeople, to vote out senators, ultimately, our freedoms, as we can see kind of during these times, are never truly protected in this country. And so without economic freedom, without economic strength, we will always be vulnerable. So for me, it was a natural progression to create an investment firm that aggregates capital that can then be directed based upon kind of different things. Right. But it is myself who's the one who's sitting on top of that, who can then direct it.
0: So talk to us a little bit more about that. Like you're you're saying we're aggregating capital. We know what that means, but let's talk to our audience who may not necessarily know exactly what you mean by aggregating capital. And then how are you with your background doing that to make effective change?
1: So, well, it's, it's, it's kind of a couple ways. So just aggregating capital just means that we're just doing group investing, right? So okay. if any of you are out there have mutual funds, all you're doing is ag- giving someone else to aggregate your capital to go buy stock. What we do is we aggregate capital or say, Hey guys, we're going to, get together as a group because we have more buying power and we're going to go buy stuff. Right. And so for us, we buy real estate. We, we invest in early stage kind of technology companies and angel investing. We're getting into that these, these days um, from a change standpoint. So we, we look at it as main street investing with main street, Okay. Okay. And so we like to bypass wall street because in my mind, they just don't add any value to people's money and they just take fees. Right. So right. if you're just going to buy mutual fund, just buy a mutual fund. You don't need somebody taking extra, just buy it directly if that's kind of how you want to invest. Right. So I don't think that they, that their original function of taking people's savings and then allocating that to businesses is what they do anymore. I just think that it's it's a place where very, where wealthy people take middle-class people's money and get wealthier. Right. Now Mm -hmm. I have my own bias around it. Fine, whatever. But that's ultimately (laughs) how I truly feel. So I personally don't put my money there. Right. Right. So I always tell people, I don't, Tell people what to do. I can just show you what I do, right? right? Right. And so, again, if people want to do that, that's fine. It's not a judgment for me. The whole reason we exist is to bypass that machine and to be able to allocate directly to causes. And I won't even say causes because I don't believe in necessarily investing for the the ultimate good necessarily. Now, I don't believe in investing for vice, and we can talk about what. I, what I consider to be vice, but you can be good stewards of capital. You can be good stewards of the communities in which you're investing, but you still let the investment run the table because my whole thing is the money I give back to my investors, they can go then and give it away to causes that they want. Right. I don't believe that we're investing to put forward causes necessarily, but we will invest in businesses that have a real business prospect in lifting people up and getting people out of debt and giving people clean housing and giving people great places to, to shop and have groceries and to give students the ability to have lower cost housing than living on campuses, all of those kinds of things that we invest in. We are good stewards in the communities in which we operate and we also hire people from within those communities to either help with construction or as employees or things of that nature. So we want to leave the communities in which we're investing better than we than when we came in. But we're not a charity. We're an investment firm,
0: right? Right, and and I think that's that's a that's a very powerful distinction because you said something that's key. Um, you give back in the communities by adding economic empowerment to those communities, but you let the investment drive the investment decision. And I think a lot of times uh, people get that backwards. They give to a cause without a without yes. an intentionality. Yes, okay. on the dollar giving a return. And we talk about this a lot, Keisha and I, giving to the church without the church economically empowering the community in which it's in. To me, that is a a platform that I've stood on and talked to people about a lot because I grew up in in poverty. I grew up in what is considered situational poverty. I had to read on it and understand where I came from. Mm -hmm. And we went to church every Sunday and we gave a tithe and an offering every Sunday But our economic circumstance did not change. And so to me, when you say you're directly impacting communities by adding economic empowerment to those communities, by letting the investment direct itself, that is a powerful statement. And I don't want people to get caught up on the idea that you said it's not about the social as much as it's about letting the investment drive the investment decision because the social will come as a byproduct, of to make sure that you do something right with people's money. Correct.
2: You're very confident in what you stand for, what you believe in. Was that always the case? Give us some highs and lows, probably more lows because you gave us a lot of outlook of the highs of your
1: story, your journey. So yeah, so confidence, Yes. I can thank my parents for that. I can thank probably my high school for that. I can thank Morehouse for that. You know, it's a fine line between confidence and arrogance. Some of it depends on kind of who's looking at you and their own internal situations. Mm. But for me, understanding and, and really as an adult, because my parents gave us, they were very clear on wanting us to be critical thinkers. So that makes for very difficult parenting. Because you got a lot of mouth back when you ask your children kind of, not necessarily, what do you think about this? But, you know, why are you doing this? What is your thought process around this? So they allowed us to question authority and to question kind of indoctrination processes, which makes it, again, that's hard to parent because I, I have two little ones that I, I one of them is exactly me. So- Same
2: here. <laughs> so-
1: So it makes it. I can sit back and laugh and chuckle and say, "Okay, well, I know where this is coming from and I know where this is going." Then going through Morehouse, the great thing about that was there was nothing that was off limits. So I saw people who looked like me doing everything on the planet. So there was nothing. There was nothing that was ever closed off in my mind about could I do this? Could I not do this? There was never. There was never a question. It was just a matter of okay, how much time do I want to devote to learning that particular thing to get excellent at it. Right. And so, had some early successes with, with the real estate stuff. You know, you have little things here and there just in terms of construction and contracting, but you get through that. So, no major hiccups or bumps. Bought the small apartment complex. We had some hiccups or bumps, but when you have capital and you have enough capital in your own account that you can make up for them, it just becomes a learning experience, right? But I had not right. begun to internalize that as just a learning experience yet, right? I hadn't been trained. For myself, from a self personal development standpoint yet to understand that I would just motor through it with, with money. Right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Then went into partnership with a buddy of mine again, out of my own capital. So we weren't, we weren't taking outside money at that particular point in time. We were doing something that's very akin to the assisted living, but we were doing personal care homes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were trying to buy out, give you all the, all the bad on this, right. Trying to buy out a, an apartment complex that had been turned condo complex. So now we were buying, apartments at condo prices to then put people into them kind of double room occupancy. So charging, you know, four or 500 for two beds in a condominium complex that we were not buying all at one time. So we were buying it kind of piecemeal. And this was in 07, 08, 09. The guy who was selling it to us ran into some financial trouble. He had cross-collateralized the deal. He stopped selling us the condos. Then we had a problem with the person who was getting us the clients to come in. So she was super kind of flaky in terms of getting new clients in. Then we had to, what ended up happening is we had to end up getting individual flood insurance on all the individual units. So we're talking about $10,000 a month kind of payments. Wow. wow. So I got four jobs at the time to keep that thing afloat. And I just realized, I had to stop and realize, you know what? I'm throwing good money after bad. There's nowhere we're getting out of this hole. I'm just going to let this thing go. Right? Now, the good thing was I didn't put any money down on it. So all I had all I had to sacrifice was my credit, but it still was a failure. Now, we still had successes with our other stuff that we owned, but this was the first kind of major failure where I had to scramble, bring in extra income to keep it going and to figure it out to so then finally realize, you know what? Zero-based thinking, you know what? Cut our losses. Let's move on, right? Right. Uh, from that standpoint. So that was kind of the first real super failure that I had ever kind of had. Now, the good thing was it wasn't with anybody else's money. Again, I didn't actually come out of pocket outside of just trying to maintain the, the mortgages for the, for during that time period. But still it was like, oh crap. All right. This did not work. The flip side of it is it's taught me that, okay, now how do I go out and continue to expand the portfolio with no credit? So mm. that's when I first <laughs> discovered syndication that's when I first discovered that I have some knowledge in my head about real estate that is valuable in the marketplace. I can begin to put that together to continue to purchase because I have the knowledge, even though I don't have the credit, let's, let's figure out ways to do that. Right? Right. Um, And so there's a tidbit and a nugget. If you are investing with a spouse, you all need to put stuff on different credits. Do not buy stuff together. That's a good nugget. Yes, a very do not good buy nugget. stuff together. Do not qualify for things together. Qualify for things individually. So if something happens with a group, you're not both going down with it, right? So that was helpful from that standpoint. And so then I went down the pathway of trying to figure out syndication because that was a time where some of my physician colleagues wanted to get in. So we put together a small syndication. Nothing fancy. We we're going to do a debt syndication. And I said, okay, if I can do this, then I don't need banks anymore. I can just use private money coming in, I can put my equity down and we can just keep going from that standpoint. Well, fell on my face with that. Didn't know how to raise capital. Didn't know how to do anything. Thought that it was all about the deal and all of this kind of stuff. Not realizing it's really all about attracting the investors who want and have the same vision that you do, right? So- Exactly. So next nugget, if you're out there trying to raise capital for any kind of thing, what you're looking for is attracting the people whose investment philosophy matches with yours. You don't want to put people into projects that you're doing that have a different life goal than what you're trying to accomplish with your project. So I could have just said, you know what, this is failure. I'm going to sit on my hands. Or I could say, you know what, this is a me problem. Not everybody else's problem. Right. I didn't say, you know what, these people don't understand how great this, these things are that we're doing, you know, poo poo them, you know, forget about them. I realized that I had to become a better person. I had to get better. At doing this because there are people who do this every single day and so back to the confidence thing right once you've had a little taste of success and I, I tell people all the time just do little stuff first to get a taste of success so that way you know you can do it right and it's not that I want to put a cap on people and not swing for the fences immediately but give yourself some undergirding give yourself something you can point back to and say I know I did this so I know I can do these things in a stepwise fashion so I just had to figure out a way to go and be better right right went from from the bottom. We've been in many of the same mentoring clubs and things of that nature, so you know kind of what that process looks like. Got heavy into personal development, kind of getting my mind right around what it is I was doing and understanding kind of what setbacks look like and what they're used for in terms of a platform and a springboard to the next thing. Because it's just the universe telling you or God telling you, you're not ready for this. You've got some training you need to go do. Go get that and then you'll be ready to go to a higher height than you initially thought that you were going to do. Right. Wow. That's really good. So, yeah. So that is failure is only when you stop trying. Right. And that doesn't mean that necessarily you have a bad business model and you should keep going after something when the market tells you, no, this isn't going to work, but it's understanding that to get to where you want to be, you have to become a different person, not necessarily morally, but your skill set, what you offer to the world, your value proposition has to become more expansive. To be able to get to whatever that next level is for you from a definitional standpoint and so it's never going to be from outside of you that you're going to get to the where you want to go it's always going to be internally from that standpoint so that was really good now
0: i don't know if our audience would necessarily benefit but I, i want you to talk about your your podcast and you know what you're doing with the physician's road and everything you're doing with that part Last time we talked, it was, you were doing the, you had the syndication company with Vernonville, and then you were doing a platform for physicians to help keep them from burning out, like kind of like a holistic kind of thing. Is that still kind of the same thing? Absolutely. And so,
1: so let me, let me give you the dirty little secret. Okay. The Physician's Road technically says the Physician's Road, but outside of some very specific podcast about medical practice, it's for anybody who's a high achiever, right? I mean, ultimately we talk about wealth. Kind of specific professional practice and a lot of that is not necessarily medically related it's other stuff uh, health personal development, and relationships right it's a life balance wheel quietly so while it is directed towards physicians because they are my one of my bigger investing groups, um, the reason why we did is is because because we really don't talk about investment we don't talk about our own projects on the physician's road right we don't talk about our investments we don't it's not about that right. We talk about investing and bringing different types of investments so people can understand what's out there, but you're not going to go to the physician's room and say, Hey, you know, I can get into this project over here. It's not that at all. And the reason why we started it was because a lot of my physician investors would come back to me for non-physician, non-investing related stuff. So because just like you guys do, I spend a lot of time in conferences. I have a lot of exposure that's not, that's outside of medicine. So I have a decent-sized Rolodex of things that are helpful to people who are kind of very niched down. So whether you're talking about engineers or lawyers or physicians, whatever the case may be, there's oftentimes not a lot of cross-pollination across industries. And so my investors who were primarily physicians would come back and ask me for these other things that they didn't get because going through medical training, we tend to be cocooned away for 12 years. So there's a lot of arrested development that happens that people who don't go to Kind of that kind of training are out in the real world learning. And so instead of me trying to do one off people calling me and emailing me, I said, you know what? Let me just take what's in my brain and put it on a platform so that people can access it without having to come through me and me being the bottleneck. Um, and so that's what the platform is really about. But even if you're not a physician, I mean, if you look at my most recent kind of podcast, I mean, I have professional speaking on there, I'm Delatoro Tor- McNeil on there. Um, we're talking about early stage VC investing. I mean, it's not super niched down, even though there is a specific target audience to help them from a burnout standpoint, but physicians aren't the only people who are burned out in this society, right? We're all fragile to a certain amount and to a certain extent um, just because of kind of the way the economic system is, is, is created. And so, you know, in the end it's a, it's a life balance wheel that even non-physicians can get, information from and hopefully resources from to help them as, a, as I like to say, create your life in medicine, but just to create the life that you want to live.
0: So I'm a do a shameless plug for you here. I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. You know, this is one that I highly recommend. And uh, as a business owner, there's a lot of podcasts out there now. Um, it didn't used to be this way, but there's a lot of podcasts out there. And so if you're a business owner, and you're looking for somebody to go down a road that they have already been down learn things from people who are actively practicing, then you need to check out his podcast. How can they find this podcast?
1: Oh, I, man, I appreciate that, man. A, I, I like that, but I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, it's j- Just the Physician's Road, R-O-A-D, or, and just my name, E-R-I-C-T-A-I-T. You might be able to pull it up. We're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we're on Google Play, we're on Spotify, um, and then the, the website the You can pull all of the, all of the podcasts are up there. And it's even, I would argue it's even better to go there because you get the actual show notes page. And so all of our links are on there. So lots of stuff we talk about, we link out to, so you can easily get to it. Um, and then also we have a lot of resources on there as well. So just investing resources, relationship resources, lots of different kinds of things. Um, because I use that kind of as a resource platform. So as I find things, I just put them up there that I find are helpful.
2: And I've I've seen those things. They are. He does provide some really outstanding tips. So I would definitely tune into that. Now, before we go, you've given us a lot of insight. I would say sage wisdom. And what are, if there is anything else that you can share with our audience, a golden nugget, maybe three things that our audience can take away right now. We always like to provide some type of action step to our audience. Give us... Anything that you feel that our audience can benefit from right now?
1: So what I would say is this. First step is clarify your goals. Get super clear on what you're trying to accomplish. So if you're trying to be a business owner, get super clear on what kind of business, who you're gonna serve, can they pay you at a margin and a rate that's gonna give you the lifestyle that you want. If you're a if you're a worker, get clear on, like let's say you're, and you're looking to invest in, and do some investments, be clear on, Why is it you're trying to invest? What is it you're trying to accomplish? Like, what is it you want your money to do for you in one year, three years, 10 years from now, right? Um, Right. Are you just putting your money away that you can hope that it's there in 30 years? Or do you actually want the thing that you get up and go to leave your house eight to 10 hours a day to do nothing for you now, right? So get super clear on what it is you're trying to accomplish. And it doesn't matter what area of life that you're in, get super clear on that. Second thing I would say is with things like this podcast, get good material into your head. The only difference between you today and you in five years is the people you meet and the books, tapes, podcasts, conferences you attend. Find the people who resonate with you and take in that material from those people and exclude the extraneous stuff. 99% of the news and all the nonsense you hear will not help you achieve anything. If it's super important, somebody in the streets yep. going to tell you about it. Take yep, all agree. the garbage inputs out of your life. And that, that's social media. That's all of that kind of stuff, right? So the people you should be following on social media are the people who are pouring into you the things that will get you towards those, goal, those clarification goals. So goals, number one. Number two is information, media, and people that move you towards your goal. And then three is just action. You have to take action sometimes you got to break some eggs to learn something and so sitting around and not pulling the trigger and not getting into the project that you know you can get into and not doing this and being scared to lose some money and all of these kind of things serves you in no way shape form or fashion being playing quote unquote playing it safe is actually the riskiest thing you can do in our society wow
0: that's really good so just to kind of recap clarity or goals make sure that you're really clear on the goals you're trying to accomplish and then two was good material from people that you resonate with take the garbage out of your life get info media people that will take you to number one which was the goal and then number three was take action take action don't be scared to break a couple of eggs go out there and do whatever it is your heart is set to do absolutely
1: Thank you for listening to Real Life Real Equity podcast. If you would like to ask the hosts a question or be exposed to our podcast audience, visit our website at realliferealequity.com and submit a request. Again, that's realliferealequity.com. Or send us an email at info at realliferealequity.com. Again, that's info at realliferealequity.com. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week right here on Real Life Real Equity Podcast.